Do you have an inheritance? Do you have any relatives that have written you into their wills? Since after the fall, like every person has known, although you can accrue much wealth in this life, you can't take it with you after you die. If people could take their wealth with them after they died, I'm sure they would. But since you enter this world with nothing and you leave with nothing, people relinquish themselves to one final act of charity upon their death. They may have worked very hard in life, but when they die, they they give it all away. So have you ever received an inheritance like this, or even from someone that was pretty wealthy? Back in 2009, a pair of homeless brothers living in Budapest received such an inheritance. These two men were so poor that they were living in a cave with no possessions at all. But their grandmother passed away and left them a fortune to the tune of $6 billion. And sometimes people are truly surprised to receive an inheritance. In 2007, a Portuguese aristocrat, I guess they're still around, left his fortune to 70 total strangers. 13 years before that, he walked into a registry office with two witnesses and he picked 70 names at random out of a Lisbon phone book. And he was going to leave everything to them. And then 13 years later, when he passed away, he did. At first, they all thought they were being scammed, of course, but it was nonetheless true. That is an eccentric way to disperse your wealth upon death. Sadly, though, some people are so warped that they leave behind their money in truly sad or foolish ways. Billionaire Leona Helmsley, she left the greatest percentage of her money when she died to her pet dog named Trouble, to a sum of $12 million. That's in comparison to her brother who got $10 million. Two of her grandchildren who got five million, and then two other grandchildren who got nothing. $100,000 went to her chauffeur, thankfully. But don't worry, I'm sure Trouble, her dog, is spending his money very wisely, his $12 million. (laughs) There are some other examples that are even worse, even more sad. In 2006, Asia's richest woman, Nina Wang, who died of cancer, left her inheritance some $13 billion to a feng shui master in Hong Kong in return for a promise of eternal life. Right before she died, she voided her previous will, which left all of her money to her family and charity and said, give it to this one guy. And this is truly sad because we all know she was swindled. She was misled. That being said, though, I perfectly understand her desire People all all over the world, they devote their entire lives to accumulating wealth. Money is their God. They live for their possessions. They want it all. But as their days draw to a close, the inevitable reality of death starts to sink in. And then they finally start to see their wealth as being futile or fleeting. They finally start to desire something more. They want something more. They want a greater inheritance. They want an eternal inheritance. But they're left without access. They can't buy it, can't trade for it. They're shut out. Thankfully, though, there is a way of access to an eternal inheritance. People are right for coming to the realization that what this world affords is not enough. It is passing away, but an eternal inheritance does exist, one that does not fade, does not vanish, does not disappoint, and that is found in Christ. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the bountiful inheritance followers of Jesus Christ have waiting for them. It's called eternal life. Eternal life, it's a, it's a quantity of life. It lasts forever. And it's also a quality of life. It is supremely glorious. And in a word, it is salvation. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering. They're being persecuted for their faith. Everything they hold dear in this life is being ripped away from them, all because they decided to follow this guy, Jesus. But in his opening words, Peter writes to encourage them that though you may lose much in this life, even your own lives, 
There's one thing you can't lose. There's one thing that cannot be taken away from you. And it is your eternal inheritance. Your salvation. As bad as things may get here in this life, there waits for all believers the glories of the life to come. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. As we are just now getting into this letter, we look now at verses 3 through 12, which actually form one long sentence. Peter introduces himself, he addresses his readers, and if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, he identifies his audience as elect exiles. We've been chosen by God for salvation, we're elect, but at the same time, the the full reality of the salvation is still future. Here we are, still on earth, we're exiles. We are left behind as believers in an unbelieving world. Glory awaits for us, but first we have to endure a time of sojourning on earth. Immediately after these first two verses, he, after describing us as exiles, Peter lets us know where our true home lies. And he says we have an, an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance, and that our true home lies with God. And he develops this truth in verses 3 through 5. Then he moves on, he connects our future inheritance with our present suffering. Christian suffering involves loss. When you suffer as a believer, you are losing. Losing your job, your health, your friends, your family members, your social standing, your reputation, your business, and so on. When you suffer, you lose. All for following Christ. But Peter again encourages us that though we may lose much in life, like I said before, there's one thing that can never be lost, that can never be taken away, and that is your salvation. It's this inheritance. Indeed, God is using our present sufferings to prepare us for that future time. And this thought he develops in verses 6 through 9. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, he shows us that although we may suffer and feel marginalized in this life, we actually have the greatest privilege anyone has ever known, and that is salvation. So in this, this whole section, verses 3 through 12, Peter is really expounding on one central topic. There's one topic that ties these together, and it's, it's salvation, this inheritance. And this, this salvation, as should be obvious, is the foundation for the entire Christian life, which is why Peter opens up with it. He's going to get into some very practical teaching on how to live the Christian life in the rest of the letter. But first, he knows he has to start with the foundation, and that is salvation. Verses 3 through 12, like I said, form one long sentence, but it splits up nicely into three parts. And so this morning, we're only going to be covering the first of these three parts, and that is verses 3 through 5. So read along with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where he says, Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. From this text, I want to point you to four aspects of our great salvation meant to encourage. Four aspects of our great salvation meant to encourage. The first one is this, from verse 3, the source of salvation. Verse 3, the source of salvation. Look at verse 3 again. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. He begins the body of his letter with a standard blessing. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here he's blessing God. He's not... Blessing just God, though. He's blessing God as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Calling God the Father of Jesus does not mean that God created the Son, but rather these titles are expressions of God's roles. 
The Father plans and directs. The Son responds and obeys. And in actuality, calling God the Father of Jesus does not express their diversity. It expresses their unity. It shows they have the same divine essence. Fathers and sons share the same nature. And being the Son of God, Jesus had a unique relationship, a unique oneness with God. Even the Jews recognized that every time Jesus called God his Father, he was claiming deity. He was claiming to be God. Just listen to this verse, John 5.18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Even they knew that this title of Father and Son expressed oneness in the Godhead. Anyway, here's this God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Peter says we should bless him, bless his name, ascribe him praise, give him the glory. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And that saying was actually a a fairly common saying in the ancient world. It was like a condensed Christian confession. But it it was meant to evoke worship and praise from believers. Why, though? Why should we bless God? Why should we praise the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is because he is the source of salvation. That's our first point. He's the source of salvation. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. And the beginning of the Christian life is described in many ways in the Bible. And one way is being born anew or being born again. And that's how life comes into the world. You know, other than God, nothing simply exists. Nothing can create itself. Every living thing must be born. We enter this life through physical birth, and we enter new life through new birth, through spiritual birth. Being born again references salvation and it highlights your newness. You become a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This marks the beginning of your new life in Christ, which will end in glory. And this salvation, this new life, comes to all who embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. You must believe in him and receive him as Lord. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Turn your Bible to John chapter 1. I'll show you an important verse. Look at verses 12 and 13. This is John opening up his gospel. And early on he says, speaking of Christ... John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's saying, look, you have to believe, but you have to be born, born again, born of God. And it doesn't come of your will or of your power. It comes of gods. This is precisely what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not even possible. You don't have the ability to see the kingdom unless you're born again. In John 3, the word Jesus actually used means born from above. What does that mean, born from above? It means that this work of new birth, this work of salvation, must be God's doing. God is the author of salvation. He's also the source of regeneration. In fact, if you turn back to 1 Peter, in verse 3, it says God has caused us to be born again. It's in the active voice, showing that this is God's effort, not ours. And it has to be this way. You need to understand this. That's why the Bible uses this terminology of being born again. Nicodemus himself, he, he didn't understand this. He said, How can this be? How can a person be born again? It sounded too radical. But it has to be that way. Why? The very reason we need new birth, the very reason we need salvation is the very reason 
We can't save ourselves. We are dead. We're lost. There's nothing we can do about it. And so we need God to intervene. We couldn't make ourselves born the first time. We can't make ourselves born the second time. Picture this. Picture a rabid pit bull caught by animal control from the streets. You know, he's filthy. He's bruised. He's beaten. He's also he's vicious. He's savage. He's foaming at the mouth. He's just barking uncontrollably at anyone who comes near his cage. So much so that you think, man, if this dog were not in a cage, he would kill me. He's just vicious. And that dog is, is lost. There's, there's no saving him. He can't be rehabilitated. He can't be saved. He can't be put into a home. He has no future. Really, the most merciful thing you can do is to just put the dog down. But that is a picture of our, our spiritual condition before God. That is us before God. We were lost, depraved, corrupt, vile, deceived, enslaved, ensnared, wicked, hostile. That, that was us. But thankfully, like the dog, we, we can't change ourselves, but God can. God has the power to change us, to transform us, to make us born anew. Thankfully, God has the power. Thankfully, God also has the mercy. He has the mercy to actually do so. Verse 3, 1 Peter, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. And speaking of our salvation here, no mention is made of God foreseeing our faith. As we learned last week, rather, the only condition for God choosing to step in and save is his, his mercy. It's his mercy. Turn with me now quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. Just read this passage. This is a, one you know well, but it's worth looking at every single time. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start from verse 1. I said before, our spiritual condition was like that that savage, lost, vile dog, caged. I'm not making that up. Look at verse 1. This is exactly how it describes us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's it. You were dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were dead. We were also enslaved. Verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's an issue of nature. This was our nature, lost, depraved. There was nothing we could do about it. Verse 4, but God. Two words. But God. God steps in, verse 4, being rich in what? Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And that's it right there. We were dead. There's nothing we could do to save ourselves. But because of his mercy and his power and his love he spoke life to us and brought us to life. So that is why, back in First Peter, we should say, along with Peter, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and really, you should put an exclamation point on the end of that. You can write it in your Bible. It's okay. You know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is the source of our salvation. And thinking about that should just evoke praise in your own heart. And we were dead, and he made us alive, those who know Christ. And you know, some people, even some who call themselves Christians, they say that glibly, just passively, not a big deal. Yeah, you know, blessed be God, sure. Blessed be God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who know this salvation... Those who know this new birth, those who, whose hearts have been actually changed, they can't say this just glibly. They say this with, with a true meaning. 
Blessed be God. Thanks be to God for our salvation. For God is, first, the source of our salvation. That's our first aspect of our great salvation, the source. Secondly now, second aspect of our great salvation, hope. The hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Physical birth brings us into a world that will perish. But spiritual birth or new birth brings us into a world that will never perish. And this forms a living hope. Peter himself, in 2 Peter, he tells us, don't hope in this world. Don't put your hope in the things of the world. Why not? Because it's going down. It's going to burn. God will judge. And if your future is here, you don't have a future. You don't have a hope. Rather, he tells us, we hope for, we look for a new heavens and a new earth. And new birth grants us access to that new heavens and earth. The world does not have this hope, the hope of salvation. The world doesn't have a living hope. The world has only a dead hope. In the Old Testament, Job, he gives a picture of the hope of the godless. A picture of a tree. You take a tree, you plant it in the middle of the desert. There's no water, there's intense heat, nothing is around. And how long will that last? And that is the picture of hope, of the hope of the godless. It's just dead, empty, false, it's not going to last. Worthless. But God's new birth delivers us from this dead hope and gives us now a living hope, like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, this hope grows strong. It, it energizes the Christian life. It's like the battery that's strapped onto the back of the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps us going nonstop, even when times are tough. And this hope, it's not just a wishful thinking. It's not desperately clinging on to a, a faded dream. Rather, it is the eager, confident expectation of what's to come. This hope is a conviction about the future. Such a hope, though, it cannot be without a basis. So what is this hope based on? It's got to be based on something. So, so what is it? Well, what does verse 3 say of 1 Peter chapter 1? He says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is the basis of our living hope? It is our living Savior. He's not dead. He's alive, and so is our hope. The fact that God raised Jesus gives us the conviction that he will also one day raise us to new and eternal life. The Christian life and the Christian hope together are bound up in the resurrection of Jesus. Christ's resurrection really was the crowning point of his ministry. It was his victory over sin and death. And without it, without his resurrection, we would have no hope, certainly no living hope. And this really this is precisely the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's turn there now. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start at verse 12. Well, Paul, he makes this exact same point. If the resurrection is not true, the resurrection of Christ, you have no hope, no living hope at the very least. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the day, of the dead? He starts off, he's asking a, a question here. Why, why do you, some of you keep denying the fact of resurrection? Why, why are some of you denying resurrection? And so he supposes. He, he says, well, let's just suppose, verse 13, but... If 
If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. That's why he's saying, look, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then not even Jesus rose. And if Jesus didn't rise, then this whole Christian thing is worthless. This whole Christianity thing, it's in vain. It's pointless. Verse 15, he says, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So he says, not only is this whole Christianity thing worthless, but we would also be liars because we've been going around preaching that he rose. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Again, if Christ did not rise, it's it. There's been no payment for sins. No atonement, which means you are still in your sins and you're going to have to pay for them. You're going to have to pay for your own sins. Verse 19, if we, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ didn't rise, our hope is not a living hope. It's a dead hope that died with a dead Savior. And do you see how vital the resurrection is? Which is why Peter brings it up in 1 Peter. It, it's everything. It's, it's the essence of what he did. Everything hangs off of it. Our salvation, our hope. But, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ has risen. He has and that is why we have hope. That's the basis for our hope, the hope of salvation. As surely as Jesus conquered death and entered perfect life, so will those who know him follow his lead. Christ is risen, and so we have hope. And so what's the, ta- the takeaway here? It is to have this hope. Do, do you have this hope? You know, what do you hope in? Everybody hopes in something. And so what is your hope based on? Some people look to the future with great confidence because they're hoping in their wealth, their money. They're trusting in their money to give them a better life, retirement, relaxation. Their hope is tied up in their money. Other people look to the future with confidence because they hope in their health. They think, I'm pretty healthy. I've got good genes. I'll live a long, healthy life. But these hopes are are dying. And nothing here will last. Everything fades. And the only living hope is salvation. Salvation that is based on a living and resurrected Savior. So do you have this hope? And are you really clinging on to this hope? Even Christians can, at times, stumble into hoping in health, wealth, what this world affords. But hope in Christ and put your hope in him alone, and he will not disappoint. These Christians who Peter was writing to, they were starting to lose their health and their wealth. They were losing everything they had. What was left? What did they have left? Well, they had one thing that could not be taken away, and it was their hope. Their hope in Christ, their hope in salvation, and that proved to be an invaluable commodity. It's number two. It's the hope of salvation. Number three, now the third aspect of our great salvation is the benefit of salvation. Number three, the benefit of salvation. You can turn back to 1 Peter. Verse three again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Salvation has many benefits, obviously. Redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness. But 
One of the key benefits of salvation, which is mentioned here, is inheritance. God has caused us to be born again to obtain an inheritance. Normally when we think of inheritance, we think of wealth, property that's passed down to an heir when a parent dies. In the ancient world, though, the idea of inheritance also expressed the legal claim the heir had on the wealth even while the parents still lived. So in other words, to have an inheritance back then meant it was yours even while you were still alive. Maybe it wasn't in your hands per se, but your name was on it, and it was yours. It was as good as yours. It was a fully expected possession. You're saying in the Old Testament, God, he promised Israel this promised land. It was their inheritance. He said it's yours. And even before they actually possessed the land, they could consider it as being theirs because God has given it God had given it to them as their inheritance. And likewise today for believers, we have an inheritance and it's our stake in the heavenly kingdom and it's certain. We can already think of it as being ours because God has made us heirs. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. <clears throat> Notice again the connection here to our suffering. This is why Peter brings it up in First Peter. Here's the thing, you, you have this amazing inheritance waiting for you. But for now, you're still in exile here on earth. And you may even encounter... Great suffering. So, so what should you do? How can you endure? Well, number one, cling on to your hope. And number two, cling on to your inheritance. Set your minds on the things above. Dwell on what is waiting for you in the life to follow. Peter, he's trying to encourage us by bringing up, by mentioning this inheritance here. And so in verse 4, he gives three words, three descriptions of this inheritance that is waiting for us. First, in verse 4, he says, our inheritance is imperishable. Imperishable, which means it's not subject to death or to destruction. Our possessions on earth, our earthly inheritance can be lost or stolen or destroyed. But he says our, our heavenly inheritance cannot. It's kind of interesting. Peter, in First Peter, he talks a lot about gold. I think more than anywhere else in the New Testament, he has a lot to say about, about gold. Gold and silver. Precious metals. And gold, it's what our world values the most. and really represents that which is most precious to us. He brings up a lot. It's just that every time Peter mentions gold, he says it is perishable. Every time. He says it's perishable, which is kind of interesting because normally we think of gold as being like imperishable. I mean, you can even still find shipwrecked treasure gold, and it's still good. It's still good money. It seems like it's pretty lasting. But he's making the contrast that our most imperishable thing in God's eyes, it's, it's perishable. It's not going to last. I read the story earlier of the woman in Asia who gave away her billions of dollars to the Feng Shui master in hopes of finding eternal life. See, she, she wanted something imperishable. She came to understand this gold, this money I have, it, it's not going to last. And so she had a, a right desire for something more, something lasting, something imperishable, only that she was deceived into thinking it could be bought with money. It can't. You can't buy an eternal, imperishable inheritance with money. It can be bought, though. You can't buy it. It's just that the price is the blood of Christ. Continuing to speak of our inheritance, Peter now secondly describes it as undefiled. Secondly, he says it's undefiled, which means it's unstained or unpolluted by sin. And the idea here is of a, a ceremonial defilement where something or someone becomes stained and defiled and unfit to be in God's presence. And to the contrary, he says our future inheritance is unstained, unpolluted by sin. It's pure. And lastly, he says our inheritance is unfading, which means it's not going to fade away. Some of you, some of you mothers in here, surely got some flowers on Mother's Day last week. How are those flowers holding up? 
still doing pretty good. Maybe if you put them in water, they could still be around. But how about the flowers you got for Mother's Day 10 years ago? How are those holding up? Now, those are long gone. At this point, they're dust. They have completely faded. They've returned to the earth. And the picture here is, is the opposite. You know, imagine a flower that never fades, never decays, never withers, and that's what our inheritance is like. 1 Peter 5.4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, in ancient Greece, if you won the Olympics, you know what your prize was? It was a crown made out of celery leaves. Now, I can tell you one thing. That's not going to last too long. Maybe one week, two weeks, tops. But that's not going to last. But waiting for us, as our inheritance, is a crown that doesn't fade. He says our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Put them together, this means that our inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. And it sounds pretty good. This is a wonderful benefit of salvation, this inheritance. And so I think a fitting reminder here is, is to cherish this inheritance. Do you? Do you cherish it and long for it? Or do you find yourself getting bogged down and infatuated with the things of the world, getting distracted? Don't get distracted with stuff. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize, the glory that awaits those saved by God. This doesn't mean you can't enjoy the things in the world that are good. It's just understand, look, it's going to perish. So don't put your hope in it. You have an inheritance. It is life eternal with the Lord. So long for that and hope in that and live in a manner worthy of that. Start now to live like a citizen of heaven. Some of you might be asking, though, this inheritance that Peter describes, it, it does sound good. It does sound good, but how do I know I'm really going to get it? How do I know that this is going to happen for me? This leads to the last point, the fourth aspect of our great salvation. Number four, the certainty of salvation. Number four, the certainty of salvation. Our inheritance... Our salvation, it's, it's not in our hands yet, so to speak. But he says, it is certain. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice the end of verse 4. He's continuing to describe our inheritance and he says, it's reserved, reserved in heaven for you. Normally when we think of something being reserved, we think of you know dinner reservations, vacation reservations, I remember when my wife and I we went to Japan a couple years ago. We made our hotel reservations online. And it wasn't even an English website. So I was thinking, I was a little doubtful. When we got there, I was hoping, I was really hoping we were going to have a hotel room. You know what I'm saying? I really thought that could have ruined things. Thankfully, it was there. But, you know, today, making a reservation doesn't come with a 100% guarantee. Have you ever flown somewhere? If you make an airline reservation, if you're late for your flight, your reservation is gone. And they're not waiting for you. They'll give away your seat. They'll take off without you. And at that point, your reservation is is good for nothing. Thankfully, our reservation in heaven is more secure than this. The word here translated reserved means guarded or watched over. It's like imagine making a dinner reservation where the owner of the restaurant personally guards your table until you get there. And God is pictured as guarding our inheritance in heaven for us. God himself, he's keeping an eye on our inheritance. And and the fact that it's in heaven adds to its security. Heaven, it's, it's the safest place in the universe. No one can plunder or steal what's waiting for us. 
And the encouraging news is that even suffering, even trials cannot void this reservation. Nothing can cause you to miss your reservation. I've said before, even if you're coming here this morning and you're going through just a terribly difficult time in life, for you, life is hard. There's suffering. There's trials. Even if that's you, nothing can take away your inheritance. You can lose your house, your job, your money, your friends, your family members, your health. You can even lose your life. But none of that can make you lose your inheritance, your salvation. This is the certainty of salvation. And that's encouraging. That is meant to encourage you. Now, here's the thing. It wouldn't do much good for God to protect this inheritance if there is no one around to receive it. So not only does he protect your inheritance, he also protects you. That's verse 5. You now who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What he's saying is that the inheritance is kept for the believer and the believer is kept for the inheritance. He's not just getting our hopes up. He's saying, look, this really is certain. Your inheritance is protected and you are protected. Protected by the power of God. This word for protected, it's a military word. Talking about a fortress. It's picturing us on the inside. Enemies on the outside. God in between. Protected. It's in the present tense, which means this protection is just continual. It's ongoing. God will continue to protect us. And it's passive, which means we're not protecting ourselves. We are the ones being protected. We're receiving the protection. And who's the one protecting us? God and his power. And thank God for that. You know, the whole point of Romans 8 is that nothing in this universe can overpower God and steal our salvation away from us. Nothing can do that. You know, during the Exodus, you remember the story, the Israelites, they just left Egypt, Moses led them out. But then Pharaoh had another change of heart, and he and his army started to pursue the Israelites. Remember? And the Israelites, they became very frightened. They thought, oh, we're, they're going to destroy us. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. What were they to do? Nothing. What was God to do? Everything. And he did. The angel of the Lord came down, you know, the pillar of cloud and fire. And he stood between the camp of the Israelites and the camp of the Egyptians. And he kept them safe. He guarded them. He protected them. And God continued to protect them through their wanderings on the way to their inheritance, the promised land. And he does the same thing for us. God protects us through our wanderings on our way to our inheritance. Your salvation is certain because you are protected by God's power. And nothing can stop that. Rounding off verse 5 in 1 Peter 1. What is God protecting us for? It's for salvation. For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation means rescue from danger, rescue from trouble. And for God, he's rescuing us from sin and its consequences. Salvation, also understand, it has a, a past, present, and future aspect to it. In the past, we were saved from the, the power of sin, the position of sin. That's called justification. In the present, we're saved from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. In the future, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And that is glorification. And, and that's what Peter's talking about here, this final stage, that final day when it, it's done. We are fully saved, completed, finished. He says salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time, which means that preparations are complete. God does not have to add a few finishing touches. It's done. The only thing that's left is for Christ to return. And that's what we wait for. Again, this is, this is certain that there's no way any true believer can lose his or her salvation. God is protecting their inheritance. 
God is protecting them, and nothing can stop that. The full attainment of our salvation is certain because it rests in the hands of God. Not in our hands, but in God's. Four aspects of our great salvation. The source of salvation, the hope of salvation, the benefit of salvation, and the certainty of salvation. This is why our salvation is great. And just think about what God has done for you, what he has given you, and it should floor you with amazement and thanksgiving. And there's really just one last question. Now, everything we've been talking about this morning, it sounds good. Salvation, yeah. Inheritance, I want that. The only question is, how do you know that you're included? Everything we've been talking about this morning, how do you know it applies to you? It doesn't apply to everybody. Not everyone will get this inheritance, so how do you get it? Who has this source, hope, benefit, and certainty of salvation? Who's this about? Verse 5. Peter reminds us of the condition. He says, We are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Two key words that you can't gloss over. How do you know this applies to you? How do you know salvation? Two words. Through faith. We are saved by faith. God's power works to save us and to protect us, but God's power is always met with human faith. Faith is a God-ordained means of receiving his work of salvation. Faith is the evidence that God is working in you. Faith in what, though? Faith in God. Faith in Christ. Faith in the gospel. You need to believe the gospel. The message of Christ. What is it? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth as fully God and fully man. And he lived a perfect, sinless life, but then he died. He was crucified. Why? For salvation. But not for himself. For, for us. On the cross, he took all of our sins onto himself and he paid the penalty and he dealt with the barrier that hinders are in God's relationship. He died on the cross, but he did not stay dead, as we learned. On the third day, he rose from the grave, and he conquered death. And now, by, by trusting him, you can be saved. If you turn away from your sin, you repent of that which you serve, and you turn toward Christ, and you follow him, you can be saved. You'll be born again. You'll be Adopted, you'll be made an heir, and that's how you get this eternal inheritance. There's nothing so important in life as your salvation. Sooner or later, everyone understands this, but some are left unable to do anything about it. Now, this world is passing away, so are you prepared for the next? Yes or no? You've heard of Christ, you know him, so will you accept or reject? Yes or no? You have to choose, and you need to choose today. But Jesus brings salvation. When with this, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 one more time. We, we were there not long ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This time we'll look near the end. 1 Corinthians 15, and look at verse 54. Speaking of our new and glorious future, he says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is why. This is why we need salvation. Sin, and we all sin, has consequences. First, there's physical death. Death has a sting to it. I mean, have you ever lost a loved one? Losing children, parents, siblings, friends, spouses. Sooner or later, you live long enough, you will experience the sting of death. And it stings. It hurts. It's a pain that can't be matched. And it's because of sin and its consequences. But it gets worse. Just as you can be born twice, you can die twice. There is a spiritual death. If you stay in your sins, if you do not run to the Savior, you will taste this second death, and there you will endure a greater sorrow, enduring separation from God in hell forever. Jesus gives the victory. He offers salvation, but you must embrace him in faith. For Christians, this is our salvation. This is our hope. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus arose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. And our hope is completed in the future. Jesus returns. This is why we can say with meaning, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is great. And it is amazing. We've been given so much. So leave here today taking heart in this and encouragement. Even if you are suffering, you have salvation. The source of your salvation is strong. The hope of your salvation is sure. The benefit of your salvation is blessed. And the certainty of your salvation is confirmed. So praise God for your salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed praise you for our salvation. We have a great, an amazing gift, the gift of life, the gift of an inheritance, the gift of salvation. And so pray for everyone here that we would all just leave with the simple lesson of praising you, blessing your name for our salvation. It is indeed the most important thing in life, the most important decision we will ever make. I pray for those who have not made that decision, that they will choose really one way or the other. I've set you before them. You are presented as their Savior, and they must simply choose to accept or to reject. I pray for all that that they would accept, that they would embrace life in Christ and forgiveness of sins. This world is perishing, and and everyone knows that. There's really no denying. Everything fades. Everyone will themselves die. There's no hope here. Our hope is in you, Lord, and I pray that everyone here would leave cherishing that hope, finding strength and comfort in it, even those who are suffering. This world can be hard and suffering will come our way. But we take heart in the fact that nothing can remove our joy. Nothing can remove our hope. Nothing can remove our salvation. So indeed, Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.